The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Again, if you're just coming in, if you don't have a Bible, you will need one, so please grab one from the back, and it's, it's yours to keep if you don't own a Bible. We love to give away Bibles. If you want, while you're getting seated, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 11. It's page 233 in the Red Bible and page 309 in the Children's Bible. Before we dig in, let's pray. Lord God, we come together this morning, not for us, but to give the worship to you that you are due. And yet, as we come to you, Lord, You pour out your grace upon us. You remind us of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, of your great love for us as our heavenly Father. Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, God, we feast on it as a gift of your grace to a people that are often confused, to a people that are often wandering and going astray and need to be reminded of your glory and of your grace and of your love. And so God, pray today that you would correct our hearts, that you would show us the paths of life and give us the strength to walk in them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna kind of jump right in today. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 11, just to give you a brief recap and catch you up to speed. Last week, Pastor Chad uh, preached from 1 Samuel chapter 10. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see that Samuel the prophet anoints the first king of Israel, and his name is Saul. And Saul's kingship is confirmed throughout the chapter through various prophecies coming true, such as certain merchants offering him food and and things of that sort, through him prophesying with other prophets. And then it's finally confirmed through the casting of lots, in which hundreds and thousands of Israelites are narrowed down all the way to Saul, and he is chosen by lot to be the king of of Israel. Well, this week is going to be further confirmation that Saul is the chosen king of Israel, but it is also his first real action as a king. Chapter 11 is only 15 verses long, and there's a lot of geography in it. And so the first time I read through it, I'm going to read through it in the form of maps, M-A-P-S. You may wonder, how do you read through it in maps? Well, you'll find out. Um, I got to use my creative side. I'm very excited about this. I'm, I'm as good at, at creativity with maps as I am with singing, and so it should be enjoyable for all of us. But if you want, you can, you can either just listen along and look up there, or you can read along, and, and we'll look at the maps. And so the first map we have here is just a, a plain old ordinary map, unpainted by Pastor Dan. And you see on this side of the Jordan River is Israel, and over here is Amen. And that's where we will start our story. So look in verse 1 with me of chapter 11. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. You ready for this? Here it is. There it is. Do you see it? The blue line? Ooh. All right. 
So the blue line, the Ammonites, Nahash goes up and attacks Jabesh Gilead, which is part of the people of Israel. All right, it continues. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Okay, now we get the next map. You ready for this? Ooh, the orange line. The messengers come across the Jordan River and they come down all the way to Gibeah to share news that they're in need of someone to come and save them. Verse five, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what is wrong with the people and they, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And so now we have the next map. The men gather at Bezek and prepare to engage the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. Verse nine. And they said, to the messengers who had come. Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And so from Bezek, the military comes and attacks the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so you see, they traveled back to Gilgal, back into the promised land to crown Saul king. And that is 1 Samuel chapter 11 in the form of maps. When I was reading through this chapter this week, the big question that stuck out to me was, what does this have to do with me today? What does this have to do with us today? What does this battle thousands of years ago, this, this squirmish against the Ammonites have to do with us today? Does this mean that we should all 
you know, raise up swords and go fight in battle like the Crusades? Well, we know as we read throughout the Bible that that's not the case. Romans 13 tells us that the sword doesn't belong to individuals. It doesn't belong to the church. It belongs to the government, to the politicians, to, to wield righteously, to, to fight against evil. And so we're not called to pick up swords. Also, we know that in the Old Testament, the people of God were not just a spiritual entity, but also a political entity. They were a nation. But today, the church, the people of God are not political in nature. We are spiritual in nature. And so the sword isn't given to us. And so if we are not called to engage in conflict physically, what is this calling us to do? Well, just to give you a hint, when we turn into the New Testament, we do see a physical battle used as an analogy of our own life. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of the faith. 2 Timothy 4.7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What's so important for us to understand and applying this text to our own life is understanding that Israel's physical battle is a mirror of our spiritual battle. That Israel's battle was to produce a political kingdom, but ours is to extend God's redemptive kingdom. Israel's battlefield was the lands of the Middle East, but our battlefield is the hearts of people. And as we seek to extend the kingdom of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, what we see is we not only have to extend this kingdom out there, but we have to extend the kingdom in here, in our hearts, in our lives. Many of you are probably familiar with the movie or the book, American Sniper. It's a story of an American soldier who goes over to the Middle East to fight evil. And he's pretty successful at it. But when he comes home, he has another battle waiting for him. As he battles against post-traumatic stress disorder, as he, as he battles against readjusting to civilian life, how to treat his family, how to engage with the culture, how to hold a job, all of those things. And so he not only was fighting a battle over there and out there, but he was also fighting a battle within. I went on the, the website Wounded Warrior Project this week and I saw story after story of so many men and women who are not only fighting battles over there, but come back and fight so many battles in here. You see, our battles are all around us. Some of the battles are outside of us. We battle things like abortion, human trafficking, political corruption. But so many of the battles are, are right within our own heart like resentment, greed, unforgiveness. And so I'd like to ask you this question. What battle are you facing today? As you wake up and you get ready, what is on your mind? What is on your heart? What, as you come to church, what are the things that you are, you are struggling with? What are the things you are fighting against, either in your own heart or the corruption in the world? Again, the battle, the battle may be within as you battle against a sin that you seem powerless to conquer, or a battle against anxiety or fear or complacency, or the battle might be outside of you in the hearts of others, as we battle for a relationship that's 
filled with friction and brokenness or battle all sorts of brokenness in our world. What we'll see here is that as we look through 1 Samuel chapter 11, it is a tangible, visible representation of how we are to fight our invisible battles, the battles of our hearts and the battles of the hearts of others, and how we are called into this battle to fight the good fight. And so as we look through this text, there are three things we'll see. First, we need to identify the enemy, which might be trickier than you think. Secondly, we have to enact the battle plan and finally celebrate the victory. First, we have to identify the enemy. Now, this may seem overly simplistic, but in order to win the battle, you have to know who you're fighting against, right? You don't want to punch Peter when Sam is the one attacking you. And so we have to know who our opponent is. Look in verse one with me. It says, Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Now this is not a trick question, but who is the enemy of Jabesh Gilead in this situation. Who is it? It's the Ammonites, right? It's Nahash. Now, what is so interesting about this is that Nahash, the ruler of the Ammonites that is attacking Israel, Nahash's name literally means snake or serpent. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, this might stick out to you. In Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, Satan is simply known as the serpent. And the serpent attacks humanity, not with swords, not with fangs, but with the sleight of hand. We're told that he is the craftiest of all animals. We see that he deceives Adam and Eve in rebellion against God by subtly changing the word of God. God came to Adam and Eve and said, you can eat of any tree you want, any tree in all of the garden, any one, except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But any other tree is yours. And then Satan comes and with a slight twist says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you see what he was doing in that question is he was deceiving them in who their enemy really was. You see, they probably knew that Satan was their enemy, but by that simple change of the question, he was turning God into their enemy. He was saying he is the one that is restricting you from having the abundance of life. And then what happens? They eat the forbidden fruit, they fall, and then who do they start to blame? Each other, right? And they blame God. The woman did it, the man did it. And so they perceive everybody as their enemy except for Satan. This is how crafty he is. You know, it's so interesting when we look at the life of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that that on four different occasions, he was beaten within a lash of his life by people, okay? Three times he was beaten with rods by people. Once he was stoned and left for dead by people. But then he writes this to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 6, 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not against Caesar, not against the idol makers, against the schemes of the devil. For we do not, We do not wrestle against flesh 
in blood. Paul knows we are prone to believe this. Paul knows we are prone to believe that our enemies have skin. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so let me ask you this question. In that battle that you are fighting, the one that I asked about before, who in that battle have you perceived to be the enemy? Was it your boss? Was it your spouse? Was it your ex-spouse? Was it your parents? Was it the church? Who is that enemy? None of these are our enemies. Jesus actually calls us to love these people. What it tells us here is that those people might be under the schemes of the evil one, but they are not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan and his minions and all the schemes that they throw out there to deceive us. So it's so important for us to know our enemy because we have to know who we're fighting against. But it's also important to know our enemies because we have to use the appropriate weapons. You see, knowing who our enemy is determines our tactics, determines our artillery to fight the good fight of faith and to stand firm. Recently, I was in a conversation with a friend and she talked about how her dad loved to shoot animals with a camera. He didn't like hunting, but he liked to shoot animals with a camera. And so one time her family pulled the car over to the side of the road and he got out because he saw a bear digging through a trash can or a picnic area or something like that. And he got out and he started shooting pictures of the bear. When all of a sudden the bear turned and started charging her dad. And I was like, whoa, what did he do? Do you know what you're supposed to do if a bear charges you? Stand firm, right? Just stand there. Hold your position because you can't outrun a bear. So you're supposed to stand there. So we did, he stood there and the bear stopped and walked away. And then he got back in the car and drove off, all right? So as we're talking about this, I thought about, you know, it's so funny because, you know, there's different tactics to get away from different predators. Like if it's an alligator, what are you supposed to do? Anybody know? Run zigzag, they tell you, right? Well, I looked it up online and it turns out all you have to do is run because they're really slow, all right? That's <laughs> so all you have to do, just run. You can run zigzag, but you're just wasting energy. So just run, all right? But here's what's so interesting. If you misidentify your enemy, you are in big trouble. If you try to escape a bear by running, or if you try to escape an alligator by standing your ground, you might as well grab dipping sauce because you're going to be dinner, right? You have to know your enemy so that you can know how to fight against them in the appropriate way. Paul identifies for us that our enemy is not people, it is not flesh and blood, but our enemy is Satan. And then he goes on to tell us, this is how you fight your enemy, all right? As we continue, verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, then having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Now there is so much in this passage, it could be a sermon series. So I'm not gonna cover it all, but I wanna show you what this looks like very practically, okay? In my life. This past week, Trish and I, Monday, Tuesday, we were just annoyed with each other. Do you ever get to that point where you're ever annoyed with your spouse or maybe just us? But, but it's one of those things where one of us will look up at the sky and we're like, look how blue the sky is. And the other one will say, really? Because I think it's really white. And the other one's thinking, of course you would say it's white, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So we're just like kind of on each other's nerves, all right? And in the midst of that, I'm frustrated. And in my mind, you know who my enemy is? She is, right? She's my enemy. Well, God, by his grace, brings this passage along. She's not your enemy. She never was. She never will be. Satan's your enemy. And Satan is delighting in the friction that he is creating between both of you. And so as I studied this passage and I thought and I prayed about it, what I realized is that I was fighting the wrong person and I was fighting in the wrong way. And so looking through this and understanding that my enemy is the devil, I started fighting through prayer and praying, Lord God, I pray that you bring deception out of our relationship. I began fighting by reminding myself of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if Jesus could love me, a dirty, stained, wayward, adulterous bride, how much more can I love my wife who is so wonderful? And I began fighting through truth, remembering that the primary purpose of my marriage is not my happiness, it's God's glory. And so you see, I had been misidentifying the enemy. And when I was able to identify the true enemy, which was Satan, I was able to fight the battle in the way that it was, we are called to. And so as you think about who your enemies might be, whether it be in the workplace or in the home or somewhere out in the community, we must not be deceived. They are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And we must fight against him, utilizing the whole armor of God. Now, once we have identified our enemy, the next thing we must do is enact the battle plan. Putting on the whole armor of God it includes more than just ourselves. It includes community. It includes the Lord. And that's what we see here. Verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Nahash, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Evidently, this serpent guy, Nahash, agrees, and they go looking for someone to come and save them. Maybe he gave them that choice because he wanted to avoid any conflict at all. We don't know. But they, they, the elders of Jabesh Gilead properly assess the situation. They properly understand that the Ammonites are bigger than them, that they have no hope of victory in and of themselves. And so they go outside of themselves to go and find someone to come and save them. And so they send messengers to Gibeah to call upon the king. Look at verse four with me. It says, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matters in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. 
Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. You know, we don't know how much time elapsed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. But in chapter 10, we read that they crowned, they crowned Saul king and all the people shouted, long live the king. Now, maybe there are people there from Jabesh Gilead or maybe the word had just spread, but they knew that there was a king, a king in Gibeah. And so they send their messengers to Gibeah to go call upon the king to come and to save them. Now, what is so fascinating about Saul's response here is it says that his anger was greatly kindled. Anger is something that we often think is a negative attribute because most of the time it is a negative attribute. Most of the time it's a sinful attribute. It's a selfish attribute. But what we see here is that anger sometimes is actually a fruit of the Spirit. You see who it attributes to in this passage. In verse 6 it says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. You see, the people's hope of salvation was not only to call upon a king, but to call upon a king that was jealous for his own. To call upon a king who would be righteously anger and would fight for his people. To call upon a king who was not impotent or motionless, but responsive and active. In this chapter, this is like the the, the, the high watermark for King Saul. This is, this is the best chapter of his life. And what he does in this chapter is he reflects not only himself, but he reflects our heavenly king. You see, by the Spirit of God, the human king of Israel was to be a reflection of the divine king of Israel. Just as me as a human father is supposed to reflect our heavenly father to my children, so the human king was to display the attributes of God to his citizens. And here Saul, flooded with the Spirit of God, is a beautiful mirror of the righteous anger and righteous love and righteous jealousy of our Lord, of our King. You know, our predicament and our hope are not so unlike Jabesh Gilead. All of us are facing imminent danger at the hands of a serpent king. It is a danger more treacherous than what the people of Jabesh Gilead were facing. It was more than just mutilation and enslavement, as awful as that would sound. Jesus in Matthew 10 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, right? The Ammonites. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, every one of us, all of us, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, deserve the punishment of hell for all eternity. Yet like those in Jabesh Gilead, we are absolutely helpless to win the war on our own. We cannot be good enough to merit our way into heaven. We are told that even our good works are like filthy rags because they're tainted with sin. And so Nahash may not be knocking at your door, but death is. And if it captures you, you will be its slave forever. And because you are unable to fight, 
against the punishment for your sin. Because you are unable to escape for it on your own, you must call out to the king. Not King Saul, but you must call out to King Jesus. Romans 10, 13 tells us, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is such good news. Everyone means everyone, anyone, whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus, our King of Kings, will be saved. This is true for the most rotten of sinners. This is true for those who have lost every battle they have ever faced. In our sin, in our guilt, in our shame, our only hope of salvation is King Jesus. And he came to save, not by spilling the blood of our enemies, but by spilling his own blood as a payment to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin and raising from the dead to give us new life. And so I'd ask you, have you called upon the king to come and save you? Because he stands ready to forgive. For our salvation, we must call upon the king alone. But as this progresses, we see that in our battle against brokenness, against sin, against Satan, we not only must call upon the king, but we must call upon the king's people. Verse 7 It continues and says, He, Saul, took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. He's serious. Come out and fight. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. I love that. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of men came out as one man to fight for the people of God. Verse 8, when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000, all coming out as one man. Verse 9, and they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow by this time, the sun, when the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. You know what's so interesting about this passage is that throughout the history of God's people, God's people have been threatened by many enemies. And many of the times the people of God are threatened, they they have victory without ever lifting a sword. You look back to the Exodus when the people of God are leaving Egypt and inspired by God, Moses says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. If you look just earlier in the book, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Philistines come to attack the people of God. And we read that the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And so in both of these occasions, the people didn't have to lift a sword to win. But when we look here, what we see is that the Lord has chosen to use his people. He doesn't need to use his people, but he has chosen to use his people as a part of his plan to bring victory to his people. He could have sent down fire from heaven or a strong wind 
or hail or whatever he would have wanted to do. But God chose to use his people to accomplish his victory. James 5.16 tells us how important it is for the people of God to support us in our battles. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In order to fight the good fight, you must not fight it alone. You must call out to the king, but you must also call out to the king's people. I've heard it put this way one time, something like this. If you want freedom from sin, confess it to God. If you really want freedom from sin, confess it to God and to another person. And if you really, really, really want freedom from sin, have that person hold you accountable. If you actually look in the back of your bulletin, you'll see that one of our major emphasis here at Jacob's Well is spiritual intimacy. Because we believe that God has called us into authentic community to fight with and for one another and to fight for the other people that are around us. And one of the ways that we establish spiritual intimacy is through things like community groups and through triads in which we gather together and we pray over one another and pray for one another and fight for one another. This is in accord with what we're taught throughout Scripture. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And then it says, Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, the best decision the elders of Jabesh Gilead made was to not fight the battle on their own, to recognize that they were too weak to conquer the enemy on their own, and to reach out to the king and the king's people to fight for them. Pastor Chad and I actually get together once a week for a triad. There's just two of us, so we call it a duad. And, uh, and what we do is, is we actually, every semester, we kind of give each other questions that we want the other person to ask us. Some of the questions are questions of encouragement. Some of the questions are, are focusing on areas in our life where we are constantly battling. And so I'll just read you a couple of the ones that I have Pastor Chad ask me. First one I always want him to ask me is, how are you feeling? I'm a feeler. I want him to ask me, how am I feeling? And usually I answer all the rest of the questions in that one answer, but how are you feeling? And then what truths has God taught you or encouraged you with this week? How is your prayer life? Are you, are you consistent in giving thanks to God? How are you and Trish doing? Have you been loving her sacrificially as Christ loves the church? How have you been doing at representing your heavenly father to your children? There's also some practical questions. Have you had cardio three times this week? Have you gotten to bed at a reasonable time? These are things I battle, I struggle with. Is there anything else you want me to hold you accountable this week? See, we engage in this battle together. And sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's sad. But we walk together fighting with and for one another. Is there anyone in your life that is fighting for you? Or are you fighting for anyone else in your life? If you don't have anyone, I just encourage you on the connection card, just just check off triad or, or community group or something. And I'd love to help get you connected because you're not called to fight these battles in isolation. That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to fight it in community. God wants you to fight it in community. 
And so we see there is this great victory as the people of God come together and fight together to overcome this enemy. And with great victory comes great celebration. Look at verse 12 with me. We see then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. If you were here last week, you might remember at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10, all the people gathered together. They crowned Saul king and they all shouted out, long live the king. But there were a few haters in the crowd, a few people that were fair weather fans and skeptics. And we read, it just says, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man, Saul, save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Now King Saul had been victorious over the Ammonites and now was his opportunity to squelch the rebellion, to put them out of existence. And yet King Saul, filled with the spirit that has come upon him, responds by extending grace to others. Notice his rationale for not putting them to death. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You see, Saul could respond by grace because he understood that he was a recipient of grace. He knew that in his own strength, they could not win over the Ammonites, but God had been gracious to them and given them the victory. And because of God's grace and salvation towards them, he could now extend it to others. This past summer, our mission team went to Costa Rica. And one of the duties they did was they went into the red light district. And instead of coming with sword or with picket signs, they came with coffee and cookies. And they shared this with, with the prostitutes, with the clients, with the cab drivers, maybe even with pimps. And they were able to do this for two reasons. One, they were able to identify that these people were not their enemy, that Satan was their enemy and that they had fallen under his deception. But the other reason is because God had extended grace to them, they could now extend it to others. And so there is a horizontal celebration in that we extend grace to others. As Jesus has called us, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so again, let me ask you this question, that person in your mind that you perceive to be your enemy, how could you extend grace to them this week? Maybe it would be to give an encouraging word. Maybe it would be to visit them. Maybe it would be just to buy them a cup of coffee. But how can you extend grace as a celebration of the victory that you have in Christ? So we see one response is, vertical, is horizontal, excuse me, as we show grace to others. But the other is vertical as we give glory to God. Verse 15, 14 says, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Saul's military victory was further confirmation that he was to be king. And so they crowned him and they gave credit where credit is due, but they knew that the credit went past Saul and it went to God. And so they worshiped him and gave him the glory and they rejoiced in him as the ultimate victor of their battle. As we walk through life and there are battles that are won, we must know that behind every battle and behind every victory, is the power of God, and we must give him the glory. Let me end with this. This past week, 
quarterback Peyton Manning retired after 18 years. Uh, he's the guy who won the Super Bowl. Uh, he sings that song, Chicken Parma Tastes So Good. You know that guy? He advertises for Papa John's, Budweiser, and almost everything under the sun. Anyways, in his very emotional retirement speech, he talked about external battles, battles outside, talked about the defenses that he faced and the quarterbacks that he faced. He also talked about battles within when he would go to to different places and they would boo him and the challenge that that was. But also he holds the record for the most interceptions ever thrown by a rookie quarterback. And he still holds that today. And so he had to overcome that discouragement. And so there are battles without and battles within. And then he goes on and he ends like this. He says, when I look back on my NFL career, I know without a doubt that I gave everything I had to help my team walk away with a win. There were other players who were more talented, but there was no one, but no one could outprepare me. And because of that, I have no regrets. There's a scripture reading, 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, says Peyton, I have fought a good fight. I've finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. And then he ends by saying, God bless all of you and God bless football. Now that might make you feel a little uncomfortable <laughs> the way that he uses 2 Timothy chapter 4. I mean, Paul writing to Timothy wasn't writing to an NFL quarterback, right? He's writing to a pastor talking about a spiritual battle. Nonetheless, there is a great question for us here. When we are ready to retire with our life or when retirement from our life comes, can we say, I know people were more gifted than me. I know there are people who are more influential than me. I know there are people who were smarter than me, but I have no regrets because I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. You see, there are battles all around us, battles inside us, battles outside us. There may even be battles today that God is calling you into. And what we need to remember as we face these battles is we need to identify the enemy. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his schemes and his minions. We must enact the battle plan, call upon King Jesus and call upon his people to fight for us and with us. And finally, we must celebrate the victory by showing grace to others and glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, this life you have called us to is a life that is often weary with battles. And so we pray that you would strengthen your servants. As we come to your table today, Lord, we pray that, that this supper might nourish us, not physically, but spiritually, to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, I pray if there are those here today that are fighting in isolation, fighting on their own, and they have lost time and time and time again, God, pray that they would reach out and join into community that will fight with them and for them. Lord, as we celebrate this Passover meal, pray, God, that you would, you would raise in our hearts the good news of Christ once again and strengthen us for the battles that you have called us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.